Well, we are diving in this year into a series called God Is. I introduced it last Sunday, and it's a little different. Um, what I want to do this morning, can I frame the morning for us a little bit? Um, I'm going to do a recap of last Sunday. I want to try and keep it as brief as possible. When I debrief with people about my sermons, they're like, yeah, your recap doesn't have to be its own message. You can just do it more. But I want to make sure that we have a good frame for this morning. And if you were not here last Sunday, please go online. Go to, you can go on the, uh, the Thrive app, download the Thrive app or to thriveglendor.org and listen to the message from last Sunday because it's, it's not important just for uh, framing this, the conversation for today, but really for the year and for 2020. And I encourage you to do that. Um, but, but the Lord put on my heart something different for this year. We're doing one sermon series for the entire year, whereas you usually do maybe four or five weeks in a particular uh, subject or in a particular series. Uh, we're, we're taking a, a whole long, a whole year approach to asking the question, who is God? Or making the statement, God is. And through that journey, we're going to explore some different aspects of, of, of Scripture, of life, uh, of, of church and ministry and mission, but always asking in, in that journey the question, who is God? And so uh, the, the journal you have this morning is a resource to help us uh, along that way, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Uh, talked last week about this question. Asking ourselves this question is really important. The question is this, what do I believe about God? Now, no, what, I, what do you believe about God? Asking yourself, what do I believe about God? Because you, you believe something. Everyone believes something about God. Even people who don't believe in God believe something about God right? What do I believe about God? And how do I know that what I believe about God is true? How have you vetted it? How have you tested it? How have you come to the conclusion that what you believe is accurate? And if it is true, how should it affect my life? So I believe something about God, and I'm absolutely convinced that what I believe is accurate and true, it should therefore have some kind of impact in my life. Would you agree? Yeah. All right. The, really, the, 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 the truth is this, that what we believe is evidenced in the way that we live. So I can say I believe something, but if my actions and my lifestyle don't support that, you can really make the statement that, well, you don't really believe that. Hello? Okay. These are important questions to ask. What do I believe? Why do I believe it? How do I know that it's true? And if it's true, how does it affect my life? We call this theology. It's the work of theology. Now, as I mentioned last week, don't get scared off by the word, because I think sometimes we hear the word theology and we immediately think of volumes of books or universities or right, people who look a certain way, studious, spend their lives in the books. But theology is something that's accessible to all of us. We are all theologians. You are a theologian. See, you have, you've arrived at a perspective or understanding of who God is. And, that, and that's all theology is. Theology is 
uh, if we break the word down, theos means God and logos means speech or word. We all have something that we declare, say, or believe about who God is because we have a theology. Theology at its core is this. It is the study of God, the study of His nature and of His character and of His relationship with His creation. I read out of Matthew 16 last week. I want to read this passage again. Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Again, the notes for this morning are available on the app. You can, you can access, them, access them there. The verses are there as well. Jesus says this. It says this of Jesus, rather. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. That's great. What about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Peter nails it, gets the, the correct answer, and, and then Jesus continues to talk about how he is blessed, not because he got the right answer, but because he received a revelation from the Father. We need a revelation from God. We cannot understand who God is. We cannot know God apart from a revelation from him to us. We need a revelation of who God is because we have to ask the question, who is he? That Jesus would say to us this morning, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I would go so far as to say, not with your words. Who do you say that I am with your life, with your actions, with, your, with the things that, that you engage in, and even the things that you would think about? See, Jesus asked this question in, a, in the most depraved place in, in Israel. Caesarea Philippi, Philippi was a haven of, of pagan worship. It's where they did child sacrifice into this pit uh, that was called the gates of hell. And, and later on, he would say that, 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 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. What Jesus was saying is that the very best that the enemy has to throw at the church of Jesus in this world will not stand. His truth will always prevail. His light will always prevail. You know that everything you know and believe came from someone or something else. There's nothing that you know or believe that, that's original. You, you've picked it up along the way, whether it's in your family, in your home, in school, you, you've picked it up. And so you're this amalgamation of beliefs and worldviews and perspectives that in many ways have been thrust on you. And, and one of the challenges in our culture and one of the challenges in the church is that we tend to believe what we're told, but we're not really taught to check it out. Does that make sense? I want to use an analogy from my own life to illustrate this, and I'm going to draw a couple of parallels, and then we're going to get to a really practical section about how we do the work of theology, but I want to set the stage. 
So, so many of you know, and, and some of you wouldn't know this, but I was born and raised in South Africa and spent 18 years of my life growing up in Pretoria, in, in, in the capital city of South Africa. Now, if you know anything about South Africa, there, South Africa used to have a system of government, a system, system of governance called apartheid. And it was systemized, government-sanctioned racism. And I grew up in that. And as you can tell, I am a white South African. So I grew up on a certain side of that perspective. I was born into it. I didn't know anything different. Now, I wouldn't say that my family or, or me were racist per se, not in the way that you would define a, like a neo-Nazi, right, or, 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 or a white supremacist. And those did exist in South Africa, for sure. But that wasn't our family. We were a Christian family. I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was five years old. I grew up going to church. We were super involved. I was f filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit at seven years old. My, some of my greatest memories growing up were at church. Yet, I grew up in, envir in an environment, in a country, in a, in, whether in my home or in school, and even in church, that constantly reinforced the ideology that, the, that a black person is inferior to a white person. Now, I never, ever, ever heard my parents say those words to me. They, they, never, they never said that overtly, but it was present in our home. I never ha ever had a teacher actually say that out loud to me, but it was present in my school. It was never addressed directly from the pulpit, but it was present in my church. And at about eight years old, I witnessed an encounter that shook me. That started to challenge what I was growing up in and what I believed as a Christian. Eight years old, I remember the day. It's a vivid memory for me. And pardon me if I get emotional over this. I saw something happen in front of me that was the norm for our country, yet the Spirit of God in me did not resonate with what I was seeing. And it created a tension in my soul at eight years old that I just, I, I started to really struggle. That same year, I had the first opportunity in my life to come to the United States. And so as the Lord starting to stir this in my soul, you know, I didn't come to America as an eight-year-old. I turned eight, by the way, at Disneyland, so it was a great year. <laughs> but I didn't come here on this, this quest or this adventure to see, well, what does this look like? I was eight. But I remember going home thinking, wow, that's really different to what I'm used to. That's different to what the norm is where I'm from. And the Lord started challenging the attitudes and the assumptions and the bias and the prejudice that was present in my own life. Now, I'm eight. You may think, well, that's kind of young. God, God uses lots of eight-year-olds. You know, we read about Josiah. He was eight years old when he became the king of Israel, and he was a righteous king. He's not a respecter of age. What he's looking for are people who would humble themselves before him and go, God, search me. 
Now, I would love to tell you by nine years old or ten years old that things had gotten corrected, but it, it, it wasn't. It's been a lifelong journey to address the things that are in me, the things that I believe that pick, I picked up along the way that were told to me by people I trusted, the people that I respected and reinforced in every facet of life. And I just came to believe that this is just the way it is. It's been a lifelong journey to, to rid myself of those things with the help of the Holy Spirit. God has done a corrective and healing work in my heart and mind. And can I tell you, moving to the United States is not what fixed me. If anything, we are realizing right now that the underlying prejudices and biases that are present in our nation are still there. That we've not done the work as a, as a nation to explore and examine and take a hard look at, at, at that specific issue, racism, is a huge issue in our nation. So moving to America is not what fixed me. Getting into the Word of God and allowing Him to examine my heart and my mind and my soul is what, about, what brought about transformation. And by the way, some key relationships and friendships with black men and women. In places where I could be safe, I was at a conference one year in South Carolina, and, and probably half of the men in, in the room were, were African-American. And the Lord led me in that place to stand up and repent in front of a group of men I didn't really even know, and they embraced me. And, and there was a work of healing that the Lord did. And I don't want to get stuck on this, but I want to draw a parallel for us. We grow up, many of us in the church, we grow up with an understanding of who God is, and we just take it unchecked, unchallenged. This is what someone told me. This is what my pastor told me, or my parents told me, or my grandma told me, or my Sunday school teacher told me, or, or whatever, the class that I took, or the devotional that I read, or that, that podcast I listened to, and we pick these things up along the way. And, and hear my heart, most of it's good. Most of it's probably accurate, but every one of us, every one of us have things that we believe about who God is that we've picked up along the way that are just flat wrong. And if we are not willing to press in personally and say, God, I need to know you. I need to see your face. I want to understand that Jesus would be saying to us, who do you say that I am? Well, my mom said, no, who do you say that I am? See, even the disciples said, well, some say, yeah. well, you're, in a, you're, 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 you're a prophet. You're Elijah. Yeah, there's all kinds of ideas about who God is. Who do you say that I am, and through a re revelation from the Father, Peter nails it and says, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. See, I think we, we in, the, in our church experience, we grow up, we hear things, we pick things up along the way, and then we become dogmatic about it. We don't test it, we don't check it, we don't understand if it aligns with the will of God, the nature of God, the character of God, and then we start building these pulpits. We start taking these stances and we become even belligerent about it. 
Like I said, moving to the United States didn't fix my racism any more than going from one church to another church will address the issues. In fact, I think one of the reasons we see so much shift between churches in our nation is that it's we want people to back up what we believe rather than allowing ourselves to be challenged by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a big thing to say. But if we're not willing to go there, we're going to continue to believe something that may be wrong and could be damaging the lives of other people. At the very least, it will render us ineffective in the kingdom of God and doing the things that God has called us to do. Even when it comes to our lives being transformed, that we get to a place of pride that says, God, I want you to, to fix me, I want you to heal me, but I want you to do it the way I want you to do it. God goes, well, I can't do that. I've got something else for you. I'm getting ahead of myself. Second Timothy 4, 2 through 4 says this, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience, careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is the warning to the church, and I believe this is why God has led us into this journey for 2020, where we as a congregation would press in and ask, God, who are you? Who are you really? Not, not what I've just been told about you. Who are you? I need a revelation. You need a revelation from the Father as the Holy Spirit would work in our lives as to who He is. And it's in that that God will bring about a transformation in our lives. This itching ears, not putting up with sound doctrine, can be really subtle. We can find extreme cases, just like in South Africa. Absolutely, there were the neo-Nazi, fascist, crazy people out there. We say, well, that's the racist. And it's easy to point out the extreme example in order to make ourselves feel like we're okay. But we have to address the subtle things in our own hearts. It looks like this, looking at Scripture, coming to the Word of God, and asking, Lord, what in the Bible supports my perspective? I'm going to find all the verses that back me up. Rather than coming to the Word of God and saying, God, would you, through the, the light of your Word, just shine into the dark corners and the recesses of my own heart and mind? and challenge me, and change me, and transform me. So how do we do the work of theology? We're going to get down to some practical things. I want to address publicly a couple of things. First of all, I want to, I want to thank a couple of people who are here, and most of you don't know, but, but I want to give honor where honor is due. Dr. Jim Adams and um, Dr. David Moore, who are two of our, our uh, theologians, professors at Life Pacific University and within our Foursquare denomination who are amazing scholars and, and men of God. And, and, and some of what I'm going to present to you, I just took, I'm like, I'm not reinventing this wheel. Um, and 
And so some of what I'll present is not my ideas. It's, it's things that they've presented and things that I've benefited from. Here's the other thing. I, I'm a tool guy. I have, a, I have a garage that has a lot of tools in it. Um, and I buy a lot of tools. I don't mean like two toolboxes. I have, I have a lot of tools. What I'm going to present to you this morning, because some of, some of you might think, well, Man, that is a really limited view of theology. Yes, it is. I absolutely agree. Because there are people who give their entire lives to studying this. We have a few minutes on a Sunday morning. So, so what my goal is to give you a couple of tools. You ever go like you, I know, Harbor Freight or Sears, or you go place where they have all the Home Depot, and they have like the rolling tool cart with like every tool imaginable, Right? And then, and then when you go to the checkout counter, there's a little toolkit that has like a little hammer and screwdriver and a couple of, like a little adjustable wrench. You know what I'm talking about? What we're getting this morning is the thing you get at the checkout stand. Now, they are tools nonetheless. And in the right hands can be very effective. But, but please hear my heart. This is not comprehensive. This is a very narrow slice. My goal is to give us a jumping off point, a launching point into a theological discovery journey, or in the journal I call it an adventure for this year. So, so how do we do the work of theology? We understand that, that our theology is shaped, it comes from somewhere. There's something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And uh, I have a picture of it up here. It says this, that, that we receive our theology via scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now, there's others that can be added to this list, but we're going to keep it simple this morning. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. I'm going to come back to the scripture. It says this about reason, that, um, that we are very smart. We are. God has created us with the capacity to reason. Remember, Paul goes to, to Athens, to Mars Hill, and what does he do with the people that are there? He reasons with them. Our ability to think, to reason, is God-given. And so we can definitely form a theology that is based on reason, on intellect, on assessing and looking at the world around us and drawing conclusions from that. We can, we can gain our theology from tradition, Right? There's things that we've just done. We are on the receiving end of millennia of tradition in the church. And a lot of that can be mapped. And that's why we have different denominations and expressions of the body of Christ. Because some traditions went this way and some went that way. Usually there was some kind of friction or disagreement that caused that. And so now we have literally thousands and thousands of denominations and movements and expressions of the body of Christ. We have our own Pentecostal tradition. We're a part of the Foursquare Church, and, and so we can trace that vein all the way back, along with personal traditions and even cultural traditions. And then we can derive theology from our experience, not just individually, but collectively, how we experience God, how we've seen God move in our lives, which is powerful, we talk about thrive stories. God, this, this is what the Lord has done in my life. And the Bible says that that's powerful. And so we can look at our own experience or our collective experience and draw some conclusions about who God is. But at the end of the day, we have Scripture 
which is, as Dr. Marsh says, the privileged authority. It's it's ultimate place where we get to see God. And so, a, a, really, a better picture would be this. I'll put this the circle up, where reason, tradition, and experience, which overlap, are completely enveloped by Scripture. See, we have the greatest gift outside of salvation, and Jesus himself is his word. That he, he loves us so much that he has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to us in his word. And that scripture is that ultimate authority for us to, to the degree or to the point that everything else has to align with scripture. Everything I believe, every bit of tr- tradition, every bit of reason, every bit of experience, and, and all of uh, uh, historical theology has to submit itself to the Word of God. And so if we turn that around, it would then make sense to say the best place to start when developing a personal theology is the Word of God. Now, I'll, I'll tell you one of the hiccups for us as, as charismatics is we rely heavily, we do, and, and I love this, that the Holy Spirit will move in us and, and will speak to us. But sometimes we can go so far to that side. Well, I feel like the Lord is saying to me, and not actually ever crack the Word of God open and check out if it checks out. Because I know there's been a lot of things that I felt like God was speaking to me, and then when I checked it against the Word, I'm like, okay, was, that wasn't God. <laughs> That was definitely me or my emotions or the circumstances. God, I need you. I, I'm looking for you to lead me. And what it is, is I'm wanting to run away. You see what I'm saying? All right, we'll stop there. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17, Paul says to Timothy, All scripture is God breathed. Say all. All, all means all. That every word written in this book is breathed by God, is spoken and given to you by God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's how I see this passage being used. Lord, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for me to teach and tell other people what to do. To teach them, to train them, to rebuke. We like the rebuking one. And training. We are so quick to utilize that on other people, yet we are so reticent to stop and invite the Holy Spirit to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us. Why, why would Paul say that we need to be corrected? Because we're wrong on a lot of points. You're like, I don't know. What's the right answer? And for training in righteousness, which comes after the teaching, rebuking, and correcting. And it's then that we become thoroughly equipped. I said earlier, I think one of the things is that we we function out of a faulty theology, a personal theology, and then we wonder why God isn't moving in our lives. God's saying, "I, I, I can't, I can't release that. I, 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 I say this to our, our pastoral team sometimes is, 
God will not inflict us on innocent people. That He will not inflict unhealthy leaders on innocent people. He loves them too much. That's why He grows His church, because He's just looking for healthy places where people can receive sound teaching and graceful, grace-filled community. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Do you see how personal this is? The Word of God is not alive and active so that you can take it and beat someone up. It's alive and active so that it can examine and divide and penetrate your own soul, your own spirit, down to joints and marrow, to the very fabric of who you are, that it would expose your thoughts and attitudes. How many of us pray every morning, God, this morning, would you expose my attitudes and my thoughts? The heart of David, Lord, search my heart. And see if there's any, any, anything in me that doesn't belong. No, we tend to come to the Word of God and go, okay, God, what do you got for me today? What's in this for me? God goes, correction and rebuking. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'll go listen to whatever. There has to be a wherewithal and a tenacity and a determination in us to be able to say, God, I want to go here with you. I want to allow you to do a work in me that might be uncomfortable, that might challenge some things, that might cause me to live differently. But I want to go there with you. Some practical points for us this morning. This is really important. The essential need, there is an essential need for us for humility when it comes to doing theology, and that's for everyone. See, so often what we do is we try to read the Bible so that we can, as, as scholars would say, we try to master the text. And really what we should be doing is letting the text master us. That my goal is not to just memorize Scripture so I know the Bible. It's allowing the Word of God to shine into our, the deepest parts of who we are and letting the Word of God master us, to submit our experience, our reason, our tradition, and our everything else, our attitudes and opinions, and saying, God, I want to surrender all of those things to you in your Word. So we have to have humility. You cannot make the Bible say something it doesn't say, and you cannot make it mean something it doesn't mean. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. My first year in Bible college, they taught us about hermeneutics, which is our approach to the, the study of the Word of God. And I remember it was drilled into us, historical, grammatical interpretation. That certain books in the Bible were written for a certain audience. When we read about Timothy or Corinthians, they were written to a certain people at a certain time. We had a cultural context different to ours. And so we can't just overlay what was written for us and go, oh yeah, we see it, just a direct parallel. No, we have to understand what was going on. 
the books of poetry or the books of history in the Old Testament, the prophetic books, we have to read them carefully and understand what the context was, who was writing it, who were they writing to, or who was it written for, and do some of that work rather than just taking a passage. Remember last week we talked about Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a favorite. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And we're like, yes. Plans to prosper you, to give you a hope. We want that, and yes, it tells us something about the heart of God, but we don't understand the context that was written. It was in the midst of incredible pain and loss, and God didn't just do a quick fix. He said, you're going to sit in this for a while, and you read it in context, and you go, oh, maybe I won't put that up on my wall. No, you, st- you still should. Just read the verses before and after. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Woohoo! But when we understand what delighting yourself in the Lord is, yeah, is right. going, God, you, you are Lord over every part of my life. That's right. So we cannot make Scripture say something it doesn't say or mean something it doesn't mean. We have to humble ourselves. We have to come to Scripture with prayerful hearts and minds to say, Lord, I'm coming with all kinds of presuppositions and emotions and whatever. Say, Lord, would you search me? Holy Spirit, would you be a part of this? And so in our prayer, we say, Holy Spirit, bring revelation. Because Jesus told us that he would send the Holy Spirit who would teach us and guide us into all truth. You want to know what the truth is? Ask him to show you. Ask him to guide you. And and here's the great thing. You don't need someone to do that work for you. You can go there yourself. It's important for us to also recognize as we ask this question of of the text, of the scriptures, what does this tell us about God? That there will be things that are explicit. It means this. John writes, God is love right? There's no like, well, what does he mean by that? What he means is God is love. But there's also places, places where we see the heart of God and the nature of God being implicit. And so a great example of that is him leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. What does it tell us about the heart of God? Now, there's, there's things that are explicit in the midst of this, but we can look at that whole story and we can go, you know what, this, this tells us some things about God. It tells us about his care and his love for his people, which, by the way, checks out when John says God is love. It, says, it shows us that he has a heart to deliver from bondage into freedom. And so all throughout Scripture, even in the book of Leviticus, because that's where like it's like, as I'm discipling and encouraging people to read the Bible, and they go, oh, I got to Leviticus. And it's kind of like this collective groan. But what if we read Leviticus through this perspective? What does this tell us about who God is? And His care and His nurture and His protection for His people, it reframes the whole conversation. So we need to look for the explicit and the implicit pictures of who God is. Is. And then we want to ask some key questions. I'm going to put the three main questions and I'll read some sub questions 
for you. And then I want to get to talking about the journal for a few minutes. We need to ask this question. What does this text tell us about God? In the midst of this journey, saying, who is God? God is, and then filling in that blank. We need to come to the scripture. We need to come to the text and just simply ask, what does this text tell me about who God is? And sometimes we need to read it and reread it and re-re-re-read it. Because we, even when it comes to Scripture, we've been taught that certain passages mean certain things, and maybe they don't mean what we think they mean. And so we need to ask, what does this tell me about God? Every verse in the Bible, by the way, we can do that with. In that, you can ask questions like, how does it, how does it describe God? What does it say about God himself? his personality? What does it describe about his actions? What is God doing in the story or in the text? What does it tell us about God's motivation for what he's doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? We do this with little kids, right? It's like, see Jill, you remember like Jill and Jane or, I mean, what was it? Jack and Jill or Jack and Jane, right? Thank you. Went up the hill. Um, Right? And it's like, Jack has a ball. Jane has a Frisbee. Jack bounces the ball. And then we ask the little kids, what are they doing? It's, we got to be like that little kid. What is God doing? Or what, why is he doing what he's doing? Asking, what are the concerns of God? It says in the Bible that God is a jealous God. Elkanah. He is a jealous God. We have this picture of jealousy like, ooh, don't be jealous. But God is a jealous God. Why is he jealous? And what's he jealous over? And and what causes him to be jealous? Is he jealous all the time? What are the concerns of God? And what does the text indicate are God's purposes and goals? Those are just the first set of questions we can ask. And if you'd like some of these, we we can get them to you. The next question we want to ask is, what does this text tell us about God's creation? So we start with God, and then we say, what does it tell us about what God has created? Not, not specifically about me yet. We like to go to me. Most of our, our approach to even devotions is, what's in it for you? And that's not even subtle, that's pretty overt. That's what I've been raised in. Read the Bible so you can get something. My whole life. And to stop and go, wait a minute. What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about God's creation? What does the Bible say and what does the text say about humanity? How does it describe humanity? How does it describe what's happening in in people and in community? What are the motivations for that? Why are the Israelites doing what they're doing? Why are the disciples doing what they're doing? What's going on here? And how is that connected to the story of God? Asking what does the text say about the whole of creation? Not just the little bit that I occupy. And what does the text say about supernatural beings? I think I grew up in a season in the church where the devil got blamed for everything. And there were demons everywhere. Now, here's what I know. The devil is very real, and demonic forces are very real. 
But I think sometimes we blame the devil for things that really are birthed out of our own heart and our own sin. And James agrees, by the way, in the, bo in, in the book of James. And so we have to go, what does this look like in a supernatural level? What's going on there? And then finally, by the way, that's all created. The only, the, the only being that has just existed outside of time and space is God himself. Everything else is created. And then finally, we get to what does this text tell us about God's relationship with his creation? And this is where we come in. What does this text tell us about God's relationship with his creation? Concerning uh, the divine human relationship, how does God want to relate to mankind? Uh, concerning God and the whole of creation, how does he relate? To, to even what has been created outside of human beings. And then again, looking at the supernatural. Three questions that are super important for us to ask as we come to the Word of God. I made this statement last week in, when I was closing. said that when we gaze intently and honestly and openly upon the face of God, we will be transformed. You can't not be transformed in the presence of God. And so the goal this year with these journals is not busy work. It's not busy work. This is not, um, this is not some form of passive legalism. I'm not going to check your homework. There's not going to be a test. This is for you. Whether you engage in this or not is up to you. It's between you and the Lord. See, because I could step in and I'll probably mess it up. My desire, and I believe God's desire for our church this year, is that we would gain a refreshed picture of who He is. It doesn't have to completely change. There are a lot of what you believe about who God is is, is right on. But what we want to do is ask some of these questions for ourselves and press in and say, okay, God, who are you? Who are you really? And start developing our own personal theologies. This journal takes us from January through March. Now, for the detailed people, you'll notice that it actually goes into the first week of April. So that's not a mistake. It just is we're a little overlap. And then in April, we'll get another journal that will take us into the summer. The passages on these pages, and so let's just do this. Um, if you have your journal, if you are, does anyone still need one? Anyone who hasn't received one yet? Okay. So the first couple of pages, we have our vision, mission. There's a letter from me that you can read later. Uh, page four and five, there's instructions as to what Lectio Divina is. Uh, how to do a Lectio Divina uh, reading, and I'll get back to that in just a minute. But if you turn to page 12, page 12, so you'll notice that it's, it's um, dated Monday, January 13th. That is tomorrow. It's tomorrow. And you'll see that the passage, the reading there is Isaiah 43, 10 through 12. All of the passages through the next three months. So the, the readings go Monday through Friday. And all of those passages will coincide with the, the sermons that will be presented over the next few months. This is an opportunity for you to take these passages and to read them 
and to understand them for yourself before someone gets up here, myself or someone else, and tells you what they mean. That you can do that work for yourself. We've opted to go with the Lectio Divina format, and I was exposed to this just about a year and a half ago, and I've really come to love the approach. See, the, the goal with Lectio is not quantity, it's quality. I've done some of the, the big Bible reading where you're reading like huge chunks of Scripture, and then in the midst of that, trying to extrapolate one thing that would speak to you. And God is faithful, and He will speak. But I think what God's calling us to do is slow down a little bit and maybe spend a little more time in a shorter passage and to press into it. So on page four and five, and I want to walk us through this pretty quickly just so that, that everyone is on the same page. So I'm not going to read the whole Lectio Divina, um, that, that, that first introduction section. Essentially, it's this. The goal of Lectio is, is to take our time and to sit in the presence of God. You'll notice that it starts with silence. To take a minute or two minutes. We are not good at being quiet. We're not. I had a friend recently who in his congregation, he, he did 15 minutes of silence on a Sunday morning. I was like, dude, that's, <laughs> Wow. But here's the thing. He had people in his church who've known Jesus for 40, 45 years who came up to him and said, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. We don't know how to be quiet. I'm not going to do that to you. But I want to encourage you, before you come to the Word, silence your heart. Sit in silence before him. Take a minute and just become aware of the presence of God. He is with you. Enter the, the find that verse. We didn't type out the passages for you. I actually want you to go to the Word. And I want to encourage you. I read my Bible on my iPad a lot or my phone, but I want to encourage you to, to do this in a paper Bible. Because what you can miss on the, the, the app, especially on your phone, is the verses that precede and the ones that come after. And so when you read the passage, just look at sometimes the Bible will have chapter headings. And just kind of read the chapter headings and get a sense of what the context is for the passage. If you want to read more, by the way, you're welcome to read more. But then read the passage. Read it out loud. Read it a few times. Walk away for a little bit. Come back. Read it again. And let the Holy Spirit allow it to marinate in you. And, and it might take a little while to do that. And then when you've read and you feel like, okay, there's some things that are really sticking out to me here, then start writing in your reflection. Write down any words, phrases, and sentences that really stirred in your heart as you were reading. Now this part, this next part is one that I added. This is not a part of the tradi traditional Lectio. But this is what's going to kind of direct us for this next year. And it's asking those questions, who is God? Who is God? What does this passage tell me about who He is? And I put it in, in there. It says, what does this passage tell you about God? His nature, His character, His actions, His purpose, His creation, and His relationship with creation. Take time to ponder that, to think about it, and then write those things down. And then there's a place for a response. Pray in response to what God has stirred in you. And then finish that time with rest. Sometimes we finish the Bible, we say amen, we've closed the, the Bible and we head out the door. 
But rest. Take a couple of minutes to just sit and listen. There's a place for you to write down how you're going to practice it, that it's important for us to be intentional. Lord, what am I actually going to do with what I've learned today? And make that as practical as possible. Don't be like, Lord, I want to change my whole... No, just today I'm going to choose to do something that will put into practice what I've learned about you. Make sure, to make, make sure that it aligns with who he is. I think that really needs to flow out of the God is. And then finally, there's a place for you to write down what you are thankful for. Today I am thankful for. And there's multiple lines because I think we don't practice enough being thankful. The big things and the small things. This, is, this has the capacity to transform our lives. Not because of me, not because of Thrive, but because of the presence of God at work in our lives. There's going to be some cool things that we're going to talk about at our Vision Sunday that will align with this, that we're going to implement in the midst of our community to take these conversations beyond just me in, in my room or wherever I do my devotions and actually introduce place for us to be able to share these things with each other uh, and excited to share that with you. So make sure you're here on the 26th for our Vision Sunday and then for our annual meeting after this. I want to invite you to stand. In, um, in fact, we're, we're going to just end with that worship team. We'll, we'll hold off. But would you stand this morning? I want to pray a blessing over you. There's no, there's no guilt, there's no shame in these. There's just wide open opportunity. Wide open opportunity. So Lord, I pray for every person, young and old, whether young in age or older in age or young in the faith, and for those who have walked with you for decades, God, that as we press in as a congregation to meeting you in your word, that we would gain a more accurate picture of who you are. God, we're asking for a revelation from the Father. Just like Peter had that revelation of who Jesus was and is. Father, we're asking that you would give us a revelation. Holy Spirit, move in power Allow your word to do exactly what your word says it will do, to teach us and correct us and rebuke us, to divide, Lord, the attitudes and the thoughts of our own hearts. I pray that presuppositions and biases that we have, wrong ideas of who you are, would melt away, would fall away. And God, as we, as we engage you in your word, Lord, that the testimonies that would flow from that would just blow our minds. We pray for healing, for restoration, for wholeness. God, we pray that we would be transformed in your presence as we gaze on your awesome majesty. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be praying for you. Our pastoral team and our leadership will be praying for you. 2020 is going to be pretty epic. Bless you as you go this afternoon. Invite someone to lunch. Go Seahawks.